We're going to get started into the last of the Beatitudes. There's some debate among scholars as to whether there's actually two in these three verses. The disagreement is about whether or not Matthew 5, 10 to 12 is just one single package talking about persecution or whether it's two different Beatitudes. I can't imagine there would be two different Beatitudes both about persecution back to back. But the reason that some believe that is that they think the one in Matthew 5, 10, when it talks about blessed, is the last of the Beatitudes and then the repetition, so to speak, about the blessedness of being persecuted that follows immediately after that in the 11th and 12th verse. Some theologians connect with the statements about salt and light that are right after this. I'm going to give you a couple quotes to show you why they believe this, but some believe that the statement in Matthew 5.10 is the last beatitude, and then Matthew 5.11-12 is just a repetition of some of those things, leading into the next portion of the Sermon on the Mount, where it talks about salt and light, and of course the law is immediately after that and then on. I personally believe that this is one beatitude, talking about persecution. There's a couple little clues, and maybe one of the quotes I'll give you, they may reiterate what I'm about to tell you, but first of all, the way it says blessed, and then it tells you what they're going to receive, for there's the kingdom of heaven, and it's about persecution. The statement's about persecution immediately after that connects it right back to that statement about blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for there's the kingdom of heaven, which seems to imply it's a package of things. It wouldn't really matter if it is or not. If the statement in the 10th verse is the last beatitude and then the next verse starts some discussion about persecution that came off of that beatitude that just goes right on into the Sermon on the Mount, that wouldn't make much of a difference. The reason it matters to me is because we're putting this in book form as we're going along, and so I have to decide where to end this first book. So do I want to end it with the 10th verse and then start the next book with the 11th and 12th and on to Salt and Light? Or do we want to finish it with the statements about persecution in the 10th, 11th, and 12th verses? I'm going to do the latter because I believe they belong together, but when we move on with this subject and continue into the next verses, if we have another book, which is likely, that's written in the next portion of this, part two, so to speak, of the Sermon on the Mount, then we might just reiterate some things about that 11th and 12th verse because they do seem to connect with the verses about salt and light. It's hard just to stop with the Beatitudes. You almost just have to keep going to the Sermon on the Mount. But given that there's no possibility we'll be able to put the entire Sermon on the Mount in one book, we have to stop somewhere and start into the next one. And it seems very natural to stop with the Beatitudes. I think this is a good stopping point for the Beatitudes. And then when we finish the Beatitudes, I don't think we'll finish this last one, by the way, tonight, by any stretch of the imagination. It'll take us a couple weeks. But when we finish the Beatitudes, then we'll continue going on through the Sermon on the Mount as we have been. So let me repeat what I said about this division between these verses. The one view is that there's a new section of the Sermon on the Mount that begins with what almost sounds like a separate beatitude about the blessedness of those who are persecuted. So there are some that believe the beatitudes end with the 10th verse, and then there's almost like a new beatitude that goes on into a different section of the Sermon on the Mount with the 11th and 12th verse. It's a little bit complicated why some people believe that to be the case. I'm just going to quote someone from each camp. As I already told you, this first view is not really my view. I think that all the statements about persecution probably need to go with that statement about blessed are the persecuted. But David Turner explains that it's clear that Matthew 5, 11 to 12 is related to Matthew 5, 3 to 10, since 5, 11 to 12 is another beatitude, according to him, and 5, 11 to 12 relates to persecution, as does 5, 10. But the differences justify viewing 5, 11 to 12 as literarily distinct, according to him, I'm going to say that because I don't necessarily completely agree, but as literarily distinct from 5, 3 to 10. 
These chiefly relate to the departure from the tightly knit pattern of 5-3 to 10. And by that, he's talking about the short statements of each of those Beatitudes where it doesn't really expand on them like 11 to 12 expand on this one. The fact that it changes person, which he may get to in a moment. In fact, he does. So I'll just read what his quote has to say about it. He says, the Beatitude in 5, 11 to 12 uses a second person, whereas those in 5, 3 to 10 all use the third person. In other words, he's saying in the first Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, talking about them in the third person. But in the 11th to 12th verse, he said, blessed are you. So that's one reason some people think he's talking about two different things here. He's talking about these Beatitudes as a package, then he stops and then starts with the new blessed about persecution that goes on into the chapter. Again, that being his position. He goes on to say, also the Beatitude in 5, 11 to 12 is considerably longer than those in 5, 3 to 10, with a triple description of the oppression, which you see in the last half of 5, 11, its reason in the last half of 5, 11, and then two commands on how to deal with it in the first part of 5, 12, all of which intervene before the promise of reward appears in the last part of the 12th verse. An additional explanation connecting the disciples with previously persecuted prophets comes after the promise at the very end of the 12th verse. Overall, 5, 3 to 10, this is his opinion, amounts to a backward glance and 5, 11 to 12 to a forward glance toward future persecution for Jesus' sake. Therefore, also, there is an obvious conceptual unity of 5.11 to 12 with 5.3 to 10, but there's also good reason to take this expanded beatitude with 5.13 to 16 as a distinct description of the life of the disciple in the world. So to make a long story short, what he's saying is 5.10 to 12 would be a much longer beatitude than any of the other beatitudes. So he thinks maybe just the first part, the 10th verse is the beatitude and the rest something else. He thinks the 11th and 12th verse, because they're in a different person, he thinks it's talking about a different issue, or perhaps it's shifting subjects, and he thinks it connects with the 13th to the 16th verse, talking about salt and light. John MacArthur gives a good explanation of the opposite view, which is the more traditional view, which is closer to what I believe. He says, the Lord's opening thrust in the Sermon on the Mount climaxes this great and sobering truth. Those who faithfully live according to the first seven Beatitudes are guaranteed at some point to experience the eighth. Those who live righteously will inevitably be persecuted for it. Godliness generates hostility and antagonism from the world. The crowning feature of the happy person is persecution. It doesn't sound so good, does it? But wait till we get into persecution and you see what persecution can do for you that you may not appreciate in the moment, but you sure will appreciate in the long run. Kingdom people, he goes on to say, are rejected people. Holy people are singularly blessed, but they pay a price for it. The last beatitude is really two in one. Now here's how he's explaining the opposite view from what Turner just gave us in quote I gave you of Turner. He said, blessed is mentioned twice in Matthew 5, 10, 11, but only one characteristic, being persecuted, is given. Although it's mentioned three times and only one result, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is promised. Blessed apparently is repeated to emphasize the generous blessing given by God to those who are persecuted. Double blessed are those who are persecuted, Jesus seems to be saying. That's a good answer to the view given by Turner. And that is that the reason there's two blesseds there is that this is pretty serious business being persecuted. And somebody who's persecuted because they have the right spirit, the right actions, they're doing the right things is doubly blessed is what he's tying this to. And his point, which I agree with, is that there isn't really a reason to split up the verses on persecution as if they're in two different paragraphs, so to speak. And the first is talking about Beatitudes and the second is talking about a different subject, other than possibly it's just a continuation on into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But I'm not sure there's any justification for dividing it up into pieces and saying that that isn't all talking about the Beatitude. When persecution's a single issue, 
being heirs of the kingdom of heaven is the single reward that's mentioned. The fact that the word blessed is used twice and that he says a little bit more about it shouldn't cause us to think he's talking about two different things. I think he's talking about one singular thing. It is possible, though, that that first view is correct and that 11 to 12 begins a new section that's not part of the list of Beatitudes, but just an expansion on the last of them. But since, as I said, this book we're putting together is going to close with the list of Beatitudes, I'm going to combine these verses together to discuss them and we'll address persecution as a whole and perhaps even the issues of affliction and suffering and other things that go hand in hand with being persecuted. All right, the verses that we've been talking about are Matthew 5, 10 to 12. He says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now, this persecution that's being talked about here is principally referring to things like attacks or oppression and other forms of abuse, whether physical, I do think physical persecution is part of this, whether emotional abuse, whether verbal persecution, which you clearly can see in the last part where people are speaking evil things about you. But I'm going to make some parallels, I said, with affliction alongside of this because persecution and affliction go hand in hand. And the lesson we learn from how to handle persecution and why persecution is valuable is the very same lesson, and it's a very important lesson for how to handle affliction. By affliction, I'm talking about things like suffering and the conditions of life that are more perhaps than just persecution. Because I started saying a moment ago, those two things are very similar in the way they impact us and our response to them is going to be very similar and their value to us when we learn their value is very similar. The value of persecution is the same kind of value that suffering and affliction have. It has the potential to work some things out of you, to work some things into you. It's got the potential to teach you some lessons you could not learn in any other educational setting than the school of suffering. The school of suffering teaches lessons no other educational setting can teach. I have learned more in the school of suffering at various times in my life than I've learned in almost any other place of education or process of education because there are just lessons that can be taught. It'll teach you lessons about yourself. It'll teach you lessons about God for that matter. I think when most people read this, they're thinking about being persecuted because they're righteous. That's what I think the vast majority of people think when they read this, and that is part of this. But there's actually two different ways you can be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Number one, you can be persecuted by the wicked because you are righteous or because you're striving to be righteous. The wicked despise the righteous. Anyone that's trying to be righteous, anyone that's trying to live righteous, anyone that is at any level of righteousness is going to be despised by the wicked. They're going to be hated by the wicked. That is certainly what a lot of people think of when they are reading this passage and they're saying, blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness sake. They're saying they're being persecuted because they're righteous or because they're seeking to be righteous. But there's another aspect to this as well, another side to the coin, so to speak, and that is that some persecution is designed by God or it's allowed by God, permitted by God, in order to make you righteous or to make you more righteous, which means you'd be blessed if you were being persecuted because of your righteousness or because of your stand for righteousness, but you'd also be blessed if God is allowing you to go through persecution in order to produce righteousness in you. So you see how there's two sides of it? By the way, those two sides are really the same thing because if you're being persecuted for your righteousness and you take it right, it will develop more righteousness in you. And that's exactly what God wants. So these aren't really two different things. They're just like two sides of the very same coin. So persecution could be because you're seeking to be righteous and the wicked are set against you, or it could be because God is seeking to make you righteous. And this type of process is part of what's necessary to do so. 
As I said, those might seem like two different things, but they're really just one single multi-layered motivation for persecution occurring, two sides of the same coin. A person who's being persecuted because they're striving to be righteous is being treated the way they are by the wicked because the wicked hate righteousness. They don't like righteous people, and they don't like righteous standards. But at the same time, a person who's being persecuted by the wicked because of their righteousness or desire to be righteous is being allowed or permitted by God to be persecuted because God could stop it, couldn't he? God could keep anybody from persecuting you if he wanted to. God could keep anything from happening to you if he wanted to. There's nothing too big for God. There's nothing outside of his purview, which means if you're being persecuted, then there must be some lesson in it that God wants you to learn, or he would protect you from that persecution. I actually read a commentator who made the statement that this persecution cannot be something that is allowed or directed by God because persecution is evil and God wouldn't do evil. But I think they're missing the point. If God has sovereign ability to do what he wants in his creation, which he certainly does, He doesn't always choose to act to micromanage everything, but I believe he could if he chose to. He could do anything he wants. He could take all of our lives with a thought right now. But he won't because he's made promises, because he's true to his character, because he has a purpose for us. So though he could do anything he wants, that doesn't mean he does do everything he wants. That's one of the greatest things that confuse people who get caught up in what they call the sovereignty of God without really recognizing what it means for God to be sovereign. They think God's sovereignty means that nothing could ever happen that God doesn't want to happen. Sure it could, if God sovereignly chooses to let it happen. say, well, why would God let something happen that he doesn't want to happen? Why do you think? If Adam and Eve were given the choice, and they truly had free will choice to choose to obey God or to disobey God, he would have had to have let that happen. And if they had chosen to disobey him, then he would have had to have permitted that possibility. So some believe he didn't permit that possibility because they cannot accept that God permitted the possibility that Adam and Eve actually chose to do something that was against God's will. They then come up with this convoluted idea that it actually was God's will for them to sin. How righteous and holy is a God who wants you to sin? Say, well, he wants them to sin so he can do something righteous. That's not even logical, and it's certainly not biblical if you take the testimony of the whole Bible. God can permit evil, even if he doesn't want evil. And then once evil has been done, for example, in the curse coming upon mankind, then God can permit evil to continue as part of the punishment for that choice. And he can allow evil conditions to exist as part of the restoration of his people. Because those evil conditions work things out of us, work things into us. Sometimes they even keep borders around us because when we are conscious enough of just how evil things might be outside the walls of the church, so to speak, we won't want to go outside the walls of the church when we realize just how bad things are. And I could go on with quite a bit of detail on that. That's not my focus tonight. My focus is talking about persecution and its purpose. But persecution can be allowed by God in order to test you, to try you, to find out if you're going to stand. That's precisely the entire message of the book of Job. So for this commentator, who I'm not going to name because they're a very famous Christian writer who is very well known, I was a little stupefied, is the word I usually use when I come across somebody that should know better, and they say something they shouldn't because they should know better. When I read him say, this persecution cannot be something God would be allowing because God doesn't do that. Persecution is automatically evil. That's what was going on in the book of Job, wasn't it? No matter what you might think is happening in the book of Job, and I think everybody in this building believes the same as I do about what was happening in the book of Job. In fact, I know you do. Somebody was persecuting Job at God's permission, right? That's exactly what the story tells us. It tells us that somebody wanted to persecute Job, and God permitted them to persecute Job. That means God permits persecution to occur to his people. 
By the way, this wasn't just some random person that was doing wrong, that God was using corrective judgment to say, why don't you persecute them so they'll straighten up? They're doing wrong. If you persecute them, maybe they'll come running back to me and get their act together. This was someone whose act was together. This is someone who God uses a benchmark for a certain level of righteousness existing in the earth at that time, that this person was the hallmark example of it in their generation. I say a certain level of righteousness because Job wasn't perfect like Jesus was, but Job was living at what appears to be the highest level of righteousness he could live in his day. And so God used him as an example in discussing this with this individual. I'm saying individual just so we don't stir up anybody that believes different than we do on this particular subject, but it's obviously an individual, isn't it? They're having a conversation with God. He's talking back to him. It's obviously someone that has some pretty powerful abilities. If they can call down fire from heaven and bring up winds and instigate people to come attack Job's flocks and those things, I'm not going to wade into that particular doctrinal issue. But it takes a massive amount of what I often refer to as Olympic caliber mental gymnastics to get around the fact that this is an individual with supernatural powers in the book of Job. You either believe Job's a real person and these are real events, or you don't. And you're going to be on the wrong side of the Bible if you believe he's not a real person and these are real events. Because he's talked about elsewhere as a real person. Why would God say, if Noah, Daniel, and Job were alive in this generation, they could deliver their own souls? Are they all mystical people, or are they all real people? That's a list of real people, which means Job's a real person. So every other person in the story named and discussing things back and forth between each other have to be real entities. And a couple of those entities appear to have supernatural powers. The two that are talking in the first and second chapters clearly have supernatural abilities. We'll leave that where it sits. I'm not planning on wading into that doctrine tonight. But there's so many layers to why we believe that that are so simple that it takes somebody that is adamantly determined to blind themselves to what the Bible simply says to avoid what it's saying in the book of Job. Rather than to offend our brothers who I love dearly who believe that differently, I don't have any prejudice against them. It's interesting to your point that Job was the peak level caliber of righteousness at that time. And there was this debate and he allowed these things to happen to him. And look how much more righteous that Job seemed to appear afterwards. That's absolutely right. Job wasn't only righteous, but it looks like he came out of this at an even higher level. At least in terms of maintaining his integrity, he came out of this having not only maintained his integrity, perhaps even proven himself in a greater way. But he was being persecuted by somebody. In the first chapters of this book, someone was specifically persecuting him in some pretty horrific ways. And yes, some of them were evil. You notice God himself didn't do them. God cannot do evil, period. He can bring about things that are evil, but they're not morally evil. When it talks about God creating evil, it talks about God creating things that are experientially evil. Like a flood is something that when you experience it, it's an evil to you. That's the way that language is used in the King James Version. When it says God creates evil, it doesn't mean moral evil. It's talking about evil things. We just don't refer to them that way. We talk about them as bad things. It's a bad thing that there was a hurricane. A lot of people lost their lives. But the Bible sometimes uses the word evil for those things because evil is bad. So sometimes when it's talking about God doing something that's evil, it's not talking about some morally evil. It means he brought some evil upon somebody, a calamity some terrible, horrific thing that was part of his judgment. That's not the same thing as saying God can do moral evil. He cannot do moral evil. So for someone to carry out persecution that is morally evil has to be someone different than God. And in order for it to be done, God has to allow it. He's not doing it, but he has to allow it. Meaning somebody says, and this is what happened in the first two chapters of Job, if you let me persecute Job, he'll turn on you. And God says, go and do it. 
God doesn't persecute Job. God doesn't send a righteous angel to persecute Job. Somebody else goes and persecutes Job and does it, as I said, with supernatural ability. So persecution is certainly something that God can allow, even of his own people. The evidence of that is what we've been talking about the last couple of minutes in regard to Job, that Job was persecuted by some agent that God allowed to carry out that persecution. Now, the agent carrying it out appears to be evil, wouldn't you think? God wasn't the one who did it. Some people try to get out of the fact that supernatural things are occurring to Job, which only a supernatural entity could do, by going to the end of the book where it says that God did these things to Job. That is also something that is a Hebraism, a Hebrew expression, that when God does something, he isn't always the one who personally does it. If God allows something bad to happen to you, there are times in the Bible where it says God did such and such, but God didn't do it. Somebody else did it. Some other person might have done it to you. The fact that the end of the book of Job, in just one statement, seems to give God the responsibility. He has the responsibility. You know why? It could never have been done if he hadn't permitted it. So to give God the credit for what happened to Job is correct, because God allowed it to happen, but God didn't do it. You see the difference? When somebody comes to God and says, and by the way, this isn't the conversation either, and some people twist this out of context, they say, so-and-so came to God and tried to manipulate or influence, or I've even heard people try to claim, intimidate God into letting them persecute Job. Is that what you read in that conversation? This person came before God, didn't say a thing until they were addressed first, and then God brought up Job. God instigated the whole thing, but it was this entity who suggested persecuting Job, and then God allowed them to do so. So we have to give the credit where credit is due for different things. We have to give God the credit for allowing it, but we have to give this entity the credit for carrying it out. So coming back to this issue, it's obvious that God can allow persecution to happen to his people. It's part of the process that can do things in the lives of his people to change them in different ways that just cannot be changed in any other way. Fire baptism. Fire baptism is an example of that, Brother Ron. Fire baptism almost definitely involves persecution. I'm not going to wade too deep into this either because this is controversial with some brethren as well related to how they believe overcomers are produced or when and so on. But the lineage I have come from has not generally believed that perfection can be produced without fire baptism. And fire baptism seems to always include severe and intense persecution. What we've sometimes compared with what happened with the three Hebrew young men going into the furnace, that it takes a furnace with that level of heat to produce that kind of perfection, if you're talking about that typologically. Because you notice they went to the furnace and the process left no smell of smoke on their garments or anything else. But the things that were binding them when they went in that furnace were gone. Isn't that interesting? The fact that it tells you there's no smell of smoke on their garments, but the ropes were burned is extremely significant. Because anything that would burn the ropes would surely burn up their clothes, if not scorch them. Even if somehow they were protected that it didn't affect their skin, it would still burn up their clothing, wouldn't it? but it didn't touch anything but the ropes. See, that's the purpose of fire baptism, if you're paralleling it. Purpose of fire baptism isn't to destroy you. It's to get rid of all the things that are binding you as a slave to sin. So using those kind of parallels, since we are talking about persecution, and we're going to talk about fire baptism, I imagine, as part of this. That's a good thing to bring up, Brother Hannibal. Fire baptism is an instrument of purging. And part of the machinery of that instrument, of that engine of fire baptism, is persecution. 
And I think that persecution will always be present when fire baptism is occurring. That's part of the fiery process of fire baptism is persecution. So if we're not seeing tremendous persecution, I would have a hard time believing people are going through fire baptism because I think fire baptism includes the ingredient of persecution. Not just the pressure that you're going through that God might be applying to you in general, but persecution he allows other people to carry out. You notice in the early church, they were being martyred for their faith. They were going through very, very brutal processes at times. Paul should have died multiple times with the beatings and injuries and stonings even that he took. But God had a work for him. And so God took him through that process of all kinds of terrible conditions, some of which I'm sure we'll touch on going through this issue of persecution, some of those passages where he talked to Timothy and others about some of the things he went through that were brutal things he had to endure. But he did them for the Lord Jesus' sake. He did it for the name of the Lord Jesus. He did it because he knew it would produce something in him. He did it because it was proving his love to the Lord. And there's all kinds of other motives that we're going to look at for why persecution has a productive aspect to it. But God obviously allows persecution and affliction to occur. And he does that as part of the testing and trying and potentially transforming process that takes somebody under a measure of pressure and heat that when they're done, they're different than when they began the process. Persecution that's allowed by God can come in two different kinds of forms and maybe variations of these. One of them is the result of God's corrective judgment on a person who's resisting his will and not following his ways, who he wants to deliver. When God's using what we call corrective judgment, he wants to deliver a person. If he didn't want to deliver them, he'd use destructive judgment. Those are two different kinds of judgment. Some judgment destroys. Some judgment is intended to correct, meaning you're going through something that's painful or some troublous time that you're passing through, some affliction, whatever the case might be, that God's trying to get your attention. He's trying to get you to straighten up. He's trying to get you to change your ways. That is one reason why he allows persecution. He will allow persecution if you're doing the wrong things and he wants to get your attention. He'll let you be persecuted. He'll let bad things happen to you. The other one is an expression of God's transformative process on a person who he desires to be righteous, who is striving to be so. Now, the key difference between those two is, in both cases, God's wanting a person to be righteous, so he's allowing persecution to be applied. In the first case, it's a person who doesn't want to be righteous, and God's persecuting them to get their attention. In the second case, it's someone who desires to be righteous. And persecution, just part of the process. Affliction, just part of the process that will help them to attain that. Any persecution that you pass through with the right spirit or with a changed heart has been positive in its purpose. Any persecution that may have been done by any wicked individuals and might have included some kind of wicked means and methods is still positive in its end result if it produces what God would like to see produced in you. It's just like the scripture that says, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. I think we all recognize that the all things there is both good and bad things. That doesn't just mean all good things work together for good. That is obvious, isn't it? If something is just good, it's probably going to work together for good. It's all things, whether good or bad, work together for good. If the person who they're affecting is called of God and loves God, because if God has called you, then he intends to do something with you, which means whatever's occurring to you, good or bad, is part of the process of doing that or what he's allowing to happen to you so that process can be carried out. And then if you love him, it'll have to work out. If God's working on you and you're determined that I'm going to love God no matter what I have to go through, it has to work out for good. That's the key to getting through any affliction you're dealing with. That's the key to getting through any persecution or affliction or troublous time you're in is knowing that God loves you and has called you and knowing that you love God. If those two things are present, you have to be able to make it through. 
Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll make it through a temporal condition, but it will mean the process will achieve its purpose and you'll make it into an eternal existence one way or the other. You may not even live through the process in this life. Some conditions we go through, we may not survive that condition. But if it produces what's necessary in us, we'll survive it on the other side of the resurrection and be better off for it. We'll either have a better resurrection or we'll have a first resurrection. There's a better resurrection that you could have under the Old Testament, but there's the very best resurrection that you could have under the New. And under the New, you can come up in a better state in the resurrection. Even if you haven't gotten to the best state yet, you can at least have most of your sins have gone before you into judgment. They're not following behind you in the train, so to speak. You're pulling them like a cart horse, pulling your sins behind you. So persecution helps to work some of those things out of us. It helps to temper some of the things that need to be tempered in us. It is very telling of just how wicked this present world is that some of the persecution that occurs and certainly will occur in the future is persecution for righteousness' sake. Think about that language. Yes, it can have that second application I made that it's for the sake of God producing righteousness in you, but I do believe the principal reason, and certainly even if it's not the principal one, it has to be just as equally true, is that sometimes people are persecuted because they're righteous. You're being persecuted because you have a standard of morality, because you're holding to the scripture, because you believe the Bible is the foundation of what your life should be in terms of righteousness, godliness, morality, holiness, all those things that the Bible defines for us. But how sad that righteous people are being persecuted because of their righteousness. Tells you how wicked this world is. I told you that's one side of the coin is that you're being persecuted because of your righteousness. The other side of the coin is you're being persecuted to produce righteousness. But the fact that people that are righteous or are seeking to be righteous are being persecuted because of that is a pretty telling statement about how wicked this world is. What a sad thing when godly people are being attacked because of their godliness or because of their stand for godliness or because of their desire for godliness. Added to that fact is the fact that this comes at the end of a list of spiritual qualities that include a number of dispositional and interactive qualities that would normally cause other people to value and praise the people that have those qualities, not to persecute them. People who are poor in spirit, mourning, who are humble or meek, as the King James Version says it, who are hungry and thirsting for righteousness, who are merciful to other people, who are pure in heart, who are seeking to be peacemakers, would, you would think, in any normal society that's not entirely upside down morally, be the last ones being persecuted, wouldn't you think? People with those kind of qualities? And yet, when we get to the end of this list of Beatitudes, Jesus is warning them, you're going to be persecuted. And especially if you're the type of people who are developing the kind of qualities in the Beatitudes that preceded this. Which, again, isn't that astonishing? You're going to persecute someone because they're poor in spirit? You're going to persecute someone because they're merciful? You're going to persecute someone because they're pure in heart? Or because they're meek? Or because they're mourning over the condition of sin? Well, in this generation we're living in right now, you dare to mourn over the condition of sin in some public way, they're going to persecute you for that for sure. Because they don't want you to be mourning over sin. You know why? Because they don't want you to point out that anything they're doing might be sin. And mourning over sin, as we talked about when we talked about blessed are those that mourn, is a consciousness inside of you that sin is present, whether in you or in the world around you, and you're mourning over that. Well, they don't want you to call what they're doing sin. So even someone mourning over sin would be persecuted by this present generation. What a sad state that we're living in. But the wicked hate all things that are good. And they especially despise the kind of people who are exhibiting the maturing of good and godly qualities. And the reason they would hate them, probably more than any other reason, is because those kind of qualities reveal and contrast their wickedness. When somebody is righteous and somebody is godly, that is a strong contrast to someone that's not. 
And when a person like that is striving to be more godly and another person is striving to be more ungodly, the contrast just deepens. Any neutral individual observing a person that is righteous and a person that is unrighteous is going to clearly be able to tell the difference. They don't want that, see? This present generation we're living in is doing everything in its power to so blend any moral standards into a meaningless mess where it's just your opinion and getting to the point now where you better shut your mouth about your opinion, where there is no moral line whatsoever. I'm going to give you a number of quotes. I did this with a couple of these. I told you when I gave you some of the other ones that one of the reasons I'm going to give you several quotes in a row, and a couple of them are a little bit lengthy, is because in some of the books that I've read on this subject, there have been some that have put it so well that I would not even consider rewording it. I wouldn't put it in my own words. And even though I may not agree with them on all their doctrinal points, very strongly differing with some of them on some, I still think you give credit where credit is due when somebody has an undeniably spiritual insight into some of these things. Turner points out that the chief marks of those who already live under God's rule are humility toward God and mercy toward people. One might expect such humble, merciful people to be valued highly by their fellow humans, but such is not the case. Jesus' disciples should expect not praise, but persecution for their righteous behavior. And then MacArthur asks us to imagine a man who accepted a new job in which he had to work with especially profane people. When at the end of the first day, his wife asked him how he had managed, he said, terrific. They never guessed I was a Christian. Isn't that horrific? He goes on to say, as long as people have no reason to believe that we're Christians, at least obedient and righteous Christians, we need not worry about persecution. But as we manifest the standards of Christ, we will share the reproach of Christ. Those born only of the flesh will persecute those born of the Spirit. To live for Christ is to live in opposition to Satan and his world and in his system. Christ-likeness in us will produce the same results as Christ-likeness did in the apostles, in the rest of the early church, and in believers throughout history. Christ living in his people today produces the same reaction from the world that Christ himself produced when he lived on earth as a man. Righteousness is confrontational. And even when it is not preached in so many words, it confronts wickedness by its very contrast. I'm going to quote several more of his statements that he made on this verse in the Bible because they're so good or because they have some good historical descriptions of other people. In this case, one about Savonarola, who was one of the greatest reformers in the history of the church. In his powerful condemnation of personal sin and ecclesiastical corruption, that Italian preacher paved the way for the Protestant Reformation, which began a few years after his death. His preaching was a voice of thunder, writes one biographer, and his denunciation of sin was so terrible that the people who listened to him went about the streets, after the preaching apparently, half-dazed, bewildered, and speechless. His congregations were so often in tears that the whole building resounded with their sobs and their weeping. But the people in the church could not long abide such a witness. And for preaching uncompromised righteousness, Savonarola was convicted of heresy, hanged, and his body was burned. Later, MacArthur goes on to say, when Christians are not persecuted in some way by society, it means that they are reflecting rather than confronting that society. Think about that. I'm going to repeat that. When Christians are not persecuted in some way by society, in some way, you may not always be persecuted physically, they may just talk bad about you, whatever. But when Christians are not persecuted in some way by society, it means they're reflecting rather than confronting that society. It is our responsibility to confront evil, not to reflect it. That's my words, by the way. He goes on to say, And when we please the world, we can be sure that we grieve the Lord. 
The way to avoid persecution is obvious and easy. To live like the world, or at least to live and let live, will cost us nothing. To mimic the world's standards or never to criticize them will cost us nothing. To keep quiet about the gospel, especially the truth that apart from its saving power, men remain in their sins and are destined for destruction will cost us nothing. To go along with the world, to laugh at its jokes, to enjoy its entertainment, to smile when it mocks God and takes his name in vain, and to be ashamed to take a stand for Christ will not bring persecution. Those are the habits of sham Christians. Jesus does not take faithlessness lightly. Luke 9.26, he talks about whoever will be ashamed of me and my words. Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. He goes on to say, if we're ashamed of Christ, he will be ashamed of us. And to be popular with everyone is to either have compromised the faith or not to have true faith at all. Hughes adds to that, by far the greatest reason there is so little persecution, he's talking about the Western world in our present day, is that the church has become like the world. If you want to get along, the formula is simple. Approve of the world's morals and ethics, at least outwardly. Live like the world lives. Laugh at its humor. Immerse yourself in its entertainment. Smile benignly when God is mocked. Act as if all religions converge on the same road. Don't mention eternal judgment. Draw no moral judgments. Take no stand on the moral and political issues. Above all, do not share your faith. Follow this formula and it will be smooth sailing. I have actually known ministers who are so averse to preaching and teaching the truth outside of the church house that they will criticize and almost attack anyone who dares to present the truth in a public forum. Do you realize they're literally falling into that pattern? They're avoiding persecution, whether they realize that's what they're doing or not. They are following a path to avoid persecution. They may not know that's consciously what they're doing, but that's what they're doing. When you don't take a stand on moral issues, or for that matter, political issues, I'm not talking about becoming politicized and getting involved in all kinds of beastly politics, but I'm talking about when something evil is going on, you just stay back and stay silent. You know the old saying, and I'm going to reword it just a little bit differently. The guarantee of evil succeeding is for good men to stand by and do nothing. That will guarantee it'll succeed, at least until God destroys it. But guess what? If you are a supposedly good man standing by while evil is destroying this earth, waiting for God to destroy the evil without speaking against it or standing against it, it's pretty likely, I'm sorry to have to tell you, you're going to get destroyed when it does because you are siding with evil by your silence. We have a responsibility to speak out on issues going on in our society. We have a responsibility to preach the gospel to all the earth, to the ends of the earth. God in heaven help us if we, whether we consciously realize it or not, are hiding away from the very persecution that is a sign of the real church. The difference between the real church and the false church, the pseudo-Christian Babylonian church and the real church. One of the quickest ways to tell the difference between the two is which one is doing the persecuting and which one is being persecuted. If you see a church in history, and I'm sad to say we've even had men among our body of people who've been persecutors. But if you see persecutors, they are not true ministers of God. You see abusers, they're not true ministers of God. You see churches that persecute and abuse, they're not true churches. I don't care if they're connected to the body of Christ or so far out in Babylon that they're miles and miles away from the body of Christ. If they're persecutors, they're false churches. If they're persecutors, they're false ministers. The true church isn't persecuting its people or any people who they're trying to witness to. It's the false church that did that. The true church is almost always the object of persecution. Just like Hughes said and Turner said and MacArthur said, one of the signs that you're a part of the true church is that the world is not going to like you. 
you probably will be persecuted. If you're the one doing the persecuting, whether inside the church or against people outside the church, you're probably part of Babylon, whether you call yourself part of the body of Christ or not. God in heaven help us, because I have known ministers in the very body of Christ who've been so abusive to their people that they've proven themselves to be a Babylonish false minister right in the middle of the body of Christ. You can have Babylon right in the body of Christ, but eventually we're going to have to get Babylon out of the body of Christ. Just like they had to search out and find out where that Babylonish garment was and that wedge of silver and those other things. Finally found them under Achan's tent. Do you realize Achan had to give those things up and then Achan had to give up his and his family's life because he did that? God in heaven help us to get rid of those things before we come to the place where God's judgment is so severe that people start losing their lives. God in heaven forbid. I told the Lord here last year that if he was trying to talk to me about anything that I am doing or saying or anything that's in me that needs to be changed, please, Lord, change me. Don't kill me because I won't change. Change me so I don't have to be killed. And I'm thankful the Lord's extended my life. I hope he's seen that my willingness to be changed, if there's some in me that needs change. Hope he's seen my willingness to speak for him, even when it's dangerous sometimes to speak for him. Too many people are afraid of persecution. It's not just persecution from the wicked world that sometimes people are afraid of. Some people are afraid of persecution right inside the body of Christ. That if you dare to speak out against certain things, you'll get persecuted or marginalized. God help us. We do not want to be intimidated into silence by this world. We don't want to be intimidated into silence by any false minister either. God in heaven help us never to find things like that among the people of God. And when we find them to correct them, Another quote, this one's a lengthy one. It's A.W. Pink, Arthur Pink, who wrote a number of very good books on prayer especially. He states that it is a strong proof of human depravity that men's curses and Christ's blessings should meet on the same persons. His quote's quite a bit longer than that, but that all by itself is a mouthful. Men's curses and Christ's blessings meet on the same person. In other words, Jesus is blessing you and men are cursing you simultaneously. His point is, what a great evidence of human depravity that human beings are cursing the very people that Jesus is blessing. He goes on to say, Who would have thought that a man could be persecuted and reviled and have all manner of evil said of him for righteousness' sake? And do wicked men really hate justice and love those who defraud and wrong their neighbors? No, they do not dislike righteousness as it respects themselves. It's only that species of it which respects God and religion that excites their hatred. If Christians were content with doing justly and loving mercy and would cease walking humbly with God, they might go through the world not only in peace but with applause. But he that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, as 2 Timothy 3.12 says. He goes on to say, Such a life reproves the ungodliness of men and provokes their resentment. On the statement, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, he says the connection between this and all that has been before us in the list of Beatitudes must not be overlooked. It is not every sufferer or even every sufferer for religion who is entitled to appropriate such consolation. This antagonism is not in return for wrongdoing or in response to what has given just cause for offense. They who are morose, haughty, selfish, or evil speaking have no right to seek comfort from this beatitude when people retaliate against them. No, it is where Christliness, which is what we call Christ-likeness maybe, Christliness of character and conduct is assailed, where practical godliness condemns the worldly ways of empty professors and fires their enmity, where humble yet vital piety cannot be tolerated by those who are devoid of the same. The wicked hate God's holy image and those who bear it, his holy truth and those who walk in it. This pronouncement of Christ signifies, blessed are the spiritual which the carnal detest, 
Blessed are the gentle sheep whom the dogs snap at. Then William Barclay is the last quote I'll give you. He says, why is this persecution so inevitable? It is inevitable because the church, when it really is the church, is bound to be the conscience of the nation and the conscience of society. Where there is good, the church must praise. Where there is evil, the church must condemn. And inevitably, some people will try to silence the troublesome voice of conscience. It is not the duty of individual Christians habitually to find fault, to criticize or to condemn, but it may well be that their every action is a silent condemnation of the unchristian lives of others, and they will not escape their hatred. So, this wicked world, and for that matter, any corrupted church or corrupted leaders in this world or in the church, will always abhor those who are seeking true righteousness and will continue to increase in their anger and their aggression against any man who God appears to bless or favor for his godliness or who's trying to hold to a standard of godliness. 1 John 3, 11 to 13, he says, This is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, not as Cain what? Didn't love his brother. We have to love our brother, but not like Cain, he didn't love his brother, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And wherefore slew him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Cain not only killed his brother Abel because Abel received God's favor, and he didn't. He did so because his works were evil and his brother's works were righteous. Those are not quite the same motivations. He certainly killed his brother out of jealousy and envy of the favor that Abel had received from God. But there was another motivation within him that would take root in and would cascade down through his corrupted descendants. Those who are carnal love their evil works, and they want them to be accepted by others. Cain actually wanted to offer God something God didn't want, and he wanted God to accept it. You realize that's what most of the evil are doing? They're saying, I should be able to live my life however I want, and how dare you, God, tell me I have to do something different? The sad thing is, as I reiterate many times, I'm talking about the nature of saving faith, there's a lot of Christians who essentially believe the same thing. They believe that all God is around for is to, apparently, let me say it like that, apparently they believe all that God is involved in, in terms of their salvation, is to give them some carte blanche, get out of jail free card at conversion, and then to wait until they die and put them in heaven with them for eternity. That's the two things God's doing. He's just giving gifts and nothing else. He's not doing any work in your life. He's not doing anything else. He saved you, so you're ready for heaven, apparently, at conversion, according to some. And then at your moment of death, you'll be in heaven. So God will do those two things for you. But he's not doing anything else, apparently. We have a whole lot of words in this Bible that are unnecessary if that's all he was doing. You could have said that in a lot less words. You wouldn't have had to tell us all the different things that are required of Christians. You wouldn't have to talk about baptisms, plural. You wouldn't have to talk about going on to perfection. There's a whole lot of things that are absolutely unnecessary It's not, all right? Absolutely unnecessary padding in this book if what a lot of Christians believe about salvation is actually true. Have you thought about that? There's a whole lot of things in this book about what our responsibility is that apparently we don't have. So why add all those words about our personal responsibility when it stopped at the moment of our conversion and we're saved forevermore? Then you don't have to have any personal responsibility, right? And even the phrase, he did it all. That's one of the most horrific lies that was ever told from a pulpit is he did it all. It's true if you're talking about the right things. All that was necessary to save you from your past sins, he did. But to be saved in your present condition, he's still doing that right now. And you're going to have to do some things. So it's not all done. That is a lie of the devil to say that it's all done and it's all in the past. Because it's not all done, it's all in the past. 
If it was, like I said, the bulk of the New Testament needed never to be written. We didn't need to know how to live a godly life. We didn't need to know what God's commandments were. We didn't need to be told the very thing I just read you in 1 John about loving our brother and the necessity that's all through 1 John about loving our brother. We don't need to love our brother. All I need to do is have faith and I'm saved. I want you to just think about this simple fact. If faith alone saves you without any other ingredients being necessary, what exactly does it mean in 1 Corinthians 13 when it says, if you have all faith, great enough to move a mountain, but you have not love, you're saved forevermore, going to heaven. Is that how it ends? You are nothing. How many scriptures are there like that in the Bible that these folks, blinded by their tradition, I keep talking about traditions, the danger of traditions, because if we don't base what we believe and practice and do and require on the scripture, then we'll get just as blinded by tradition too. And one day we'll be teaching something that nobody will know why we're teaching it, but everybody believes it. Like in Christendom, there are doctrines that everybody believes. It just has to be right. Not everybody believes, but a lot of people believe, and it just has to be right. And all you got to do is look at the Bible. That isn't what the Bible teaches, so why do you believe that? Because tradition has reinforced it over and over again. Tradition is the greatest enemy of truth. People ask sometimes, what's so bad about tradition? Nothing if it's based on the truth. But if it's not based on the truth, it is the greatest enemy of truth because eventually it'll eclipse the truth or it'll become equal with the truth where someone will say, our traditions are just as necessary as the truth in the Bible. That's what the Catholic Church did. Talk to you about that a lot lately, so I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. One reason that the wicked hate good works so intently is that good works set a standard for what has to be done in order for them to be accepted. So the fact that Cain hated Abel's good works Abel's good work set the standard for what Cain had to do. Cain didn't want to sacrifice an animal. He wanted to just give some of his crop. But God wanted an animal to be sacrificed. But Cain didn't want to do that. There could be a variety of reasons. Maybe he didn't have an animal he thought could be sacrificed because he was more of a farmer. Maybe he just didn't want to give up an animal. It's a whole lot easier to give up some plants you raised, wouldn't you say? The plants will come up again next year if you sow the seed, but an animal, you lose that, you may not have another one. There could be a variety of reasons why Cain didn't offer the right sacrifice. He must have known what it was, but he chose to offer what he wanted to offer. It's just like a lot of this world. They want to offer what they want to offer. I went off on a little rabbit trail talking about how Christians get that way, but they do. I want to live my life however I want to live it. You just save me, Lord. You save me, and I'll just have faith that you're saving me, and I can keep on living my life like I've always lived it. What an abomination. That's nothing like what the Bible teaches. It teaches us to go on. It teaches us to run a race. It teaches us to fight a good fight. It teaches us to wrestle with the old man and to kill him eventually, by the way. Not just wrestle him down, but take his life. And that's very different from what much of the Christian world teaches. But coming back to the more common meaning of this, the fact that the wicked want to do their own thing. They don't want somebody to tell them, you have to live up to this level. This is what it is to be righteous. You're doing such and such, and God is going to judge you for that. They don't want to be told that. You'll almost have violence committed on you in this present day we're living in, even here in the West. If you tell somebody what you're doing is going to cause God's judgment to fall on you and you're going to die, you'll have some people that will physically attack you right here and now on these streets in the United States of America. We have come that far into debauchery that just challenging some of the perverse things that are going on in this present generation, even if you did it gently and just said, God is going to judge you for that, please stop doing it. You might get physically assaulted and who knows what will be said about you which is exactly what's in the last part of this passage, talking about some of the persecution that occurs verbally, you know, people saying evil about you. 
There's two elements to that. I'll probably come back to it. But there is the fact that they're speaking evil against you falsely. And then there's the fact that they're speaking evil against you. Those are two different categories because some things they might be saying are entirely false. Some might be partially true. Some things they're saying might be true, but are just rude or nasty things to say. We'll get to that a little bit later, but they hate the good works that the righteous are doing and they persecute the righteous, which is what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 5, 10 to 12, because of their righteousness, because that standard reveals their unrighteousness. It shows how wrong their evil works are. And so they try to destroy that light shining on them that reveals their wickedness by destroying the source of the light, by destroying the bearers of the light. The source of the light is the word of God. The bearers of the light are us. We're the ones who are the light bearers, shining in this dark world, as Paul talked about, holding forth the word of life. You know what we're doing? It's like a lamp that we're holding out in pitch darkness. This world is falling into pitch darkness, and we're holding out a lamp to let them see there's a way out of this. There's a way out of the dark. We have to be lights, burning lights and bright lights in this dark world. Again, holding forth the word of life, because that's their only hope, as if they will respond to the word of life. But they don't want to do that. So they persecute those who are holding out that opportunity to them. It, again, shows you just how upside down this world is. When people trying to deliver you from death are the ones you're persecuting. That's literally what it is. If somebody's preaching the gospel to somebody or trying to appeal to them to turn to God or turn from their wicked ways, if they didn't love you, if they didn't want to save you, why do it at all? Think about that for a minute. They get so upset that somebody is saying, you have to stop doing that, that's wicked. And they want to kill you for it. They want to kill your influencers. They might even want to kill you for daring to tell them that what they're doing is evil and wicked. You realize how much easier it would be not to? Do you realize we are risking ourselves for them by telling them that? That's what this issue about persecution is about on one level. It's that we have to be willing to be persecuted for righteousness sake. Here's a third layer to it. For the sake of their potential righteousness. Right now, they're unrighteous. Right now, they're lost in sin. And we're reaching out to them, hoping we can bring them into a relationship with God so they can be made righteous and redeemed from destruction. And they're persecuting us for trying to save them. It'd be like somebody drowning and you're reaching out over the side of the boat to get them and they bite your hand. Or they pull out a knife and stab you. You're trying to save them from drowning. That's what these scriptures are describing. The individuals describing these beatitudes are the epitome of what it is to be a Christian. And people like that reaching out to this lost world, trying to deliver them, trying to help them. Again, we'd be a lot safer if we just shut up and stayed out of the way, wouldn't we? If we didn't speak out against evil. Why are we speaking out against evil? Well, one reason is because we find it horrifying. We know it angers God. We don't want to live in that kind of society ourselves. But you know what one of the greatest reasons for speaking out against evil is? To deliver those who are doing it. And so while we're trying to deliver them, they're attacking us. While we're trying to save them, they're persecuting us. And you will get persecuted because they don't want to be saved. Isn't that a sad thing? They would rather drown in that terrible mess than to be pulled out of it and to have life. you have something? I was just thinking about the, the thou shalt not suffer sin. You know, to love thy neighbor as thyself. You don't want to see them fall into a pit, so... We don't, we don't want to see people hurt. So right at the heart of this issue of persecution for righteousness sake, I said, I've added a third thing to it. There's three things at least you could come up with. One of them is you're being persecuted because you're trying to be righteous. Number two, 
you could be, God could permit you to be persecuted because he wants you to be righteous, because he's working something in you. Three, you might be persecuted because you are hoping others will be redeemed and be able to be made righteous. All those things will bring persecution, but only because this world is so wicked and so resistant to righteousness. Proverbs 29.10 says, The bloodthirsty hate the upright, but the just seek his soul. You realize the word just is a word for righteous? You see the word just in the King James Version quite often? It's the very same word that means righteous. So think about that. The bloodthirsty hate the upright. We're upright and trying to help them to get to be upright. We're trying to be the just that seek his soul. So you got some bloodthirsty person that hates the upright, but if you're a righteous man, you'll still try to seek his soul. That doesn't mean to take his soul, to kill him. That means to seek to deliver his soul. Down the 27th verse of that 29th chapter, it says, An unjust man is an abomination to the just, and he that is upright in the way is abomination to the wicked. Isaiah 59, 14 to 15, where it says, Judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him, but there was no judgment. In a fallen world, and especially in a day of great darkness like that that we're presently living in, a man who takes a stand for God and the right will make himself a prey for persecutors. And they're looking to persecute you. If they think there's anybody that dares say anything that contradicts their cultural worldview they're trying to push on this nation, they will try to destroy you very quickly. They will try to erase your influence. They will try to destroy your reputation. That's part of what this persecution is talking about. In the 10th verse of Matthew 5, I think Jesus is talking about persecution in general. In the 11th and 12th verse, he's talking pretty specifically about persecution in terms of things people are saying about you. People can do tremendous damage with their words. If they didn't kill you, in some cases, you might be better off they beat you up and left you half dead on the side of the road than to go off and destroy your reputation and erase your influence. That's the definition of cancel culture, where anybody that dares to challenge them, they cancel. Like you're canceling a subscription or something that you were getting. They weren't getting us to begin with, so they really couldn't cancel us because they never were subscribed to our views to begin with. But they try to cancel you in the sense of canceling your influence, getting rid of you, taking you off the air, so to speak, making sure your voice isn't heard anymore, making sure you can't publish anything, making sure you can't speak out, making sure that if you do dare to speak out, they'll have painted you in some way that will cause people to either fear you or hate you so no one will listen to you. That's the world we're living in. That's literally the fulfillment of the 11th and 12th verses of Matthew 5. What the wicked are doing to persecute the righteous. It is literally being fulfilled right before our eyes in the cancel culture we're living in and in the methods that are used to destroy reputation and influence of anybody who dares to speak out against evil. What we better never let happen is for that to duck its ugly head into the tent of the body of Christ and creep in. If we ever come to a place where men speaking out against evil in the church or evil in the leadership of the church are persecuted in the same way the world persecutes people by someone trying to cancel them or silence them or destroy their reputation or influence, we are no better than this beastly world. We better guard ourselves against it. Though there are numerous examples of men of God being persecuted in this kind of way that I've been referring to, one of the most dramatic in the entire Bible, other than Job perhaps, is another J. Who do you think I'm thinking of? You might say, well, there's a lot of J's in the Bible, aren't there? <laughs> Joseph, Jesus, you go, J, Hugh, you can start going through all kinds of, I can probably name J names in the Bible the rest of the night. Jeremiah. Thank you, Kevin. 
Job was an example of a man of God that was persecuted. Jeremiah was persecuted in a different way. Job wasn't persecuted because he was preaching against the wicked and they persecuted him. He was persecuted because he was so righteous and they persecuted him. That's one way that you can be persecuted because of your righteousness. As we said, one meaning of being persecuted for righteousness sake. Jeremiah was persecuted because of his righteous message that they didn't want to accept. And it was a time when Jeremiah was prophesying when the people of Judah were so full of themselves, so convinced of their supposed superiority and special selection by God that God has to use us. We better never get to this place as a church or a body of people. God has to use us. And because of that, no matter what's going on among us, God's not going to judge us. He's not going to put us aside. That's exactly the spirit that the people of Judah had. All the things that they had done that had displeased God, God sent a prophet to them to tell them, you better get down on your face and repent. He didn't necessarily tell them they're going to get out of the judgment, but I believe the judgment could have been less severe. There's hints in Jeremiah that the judgment could have been less severe than it was if they had been repentant about it. They were still going to go through judgment because God had already determined there was going to be 70 years of judgment. But those 70 years could have been a lot easier than they were with the mourning and the crying and the other things going on along River Chabar where they were laying down their harps and weeping, the psalmist describes, and all the horrible things and persecutions they went through and other things that happened, even the destruction of the temple and the city. Do you realize if they would have surrendered, that temple and city probably would have never been destroyed? There were things they could have done to perhaps lessen the judgment of God that happened in 586 B.C. It happened before that. It started happening in the early 600s. They started taking them prisoner. That's when Daniel and Ananias, Mishael, and Azariah were taken into captivity. It would have been around 605, 606, somewhere in there. But 586 is when the temple and the city were destroyed by Nebuzaradan, Nebuchadnezzar's captain, his general. They could have possibly lessened that judgment. Not in its length. That was already set. But in its severity. But they didn't listen to Jeremiah. They were so arrogant about their identity. We are the special people of God. God can't set us aside. What a foolish thing to say. God forbid. God forbid. Not only were they so full of themselves that they wouldn't believe that God was even bringing judgment on them, but they wanted to destroy Jeremiah for calling out their pollutions and some of their prideful misconceptions. What a sad commentary. I've seen times that God has judged the church. I've seen times God judged the body of Christ. That people have walked away from the judgment and said, we're not under judgment. You're not? There have been times when people have done terrible things and judgment fell. And perhaps someone would say, the judgment's over. The person who did the things has been dealt with. If we're continuing in their spirit, means, and methods, the judgment will not be over until those things are rejected. Jeremiah 18, 18 says, Then said they, Come and let us devise devices against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us smite him with the tongue. Let us not give heed to any of his words. You know what it means to smite somebody with the tongue? They were using communication to destroy Jeremiah from both sides. Number one, they were ignoring what he had to say. Let us not give any heed to his words. Silence him and don't listen to anything he has to say. On the other hand, they're going to smite him with their tongue, meaning they're going to say bad things about him, slander him, who knows what all. And you notice Jeremiah's enemies here, it's going to include the people and the princes as well. But in this passage, Jeremiah's enemies included corrupt ministers, who's being referred to as the false priests and prophets here, who attacked him with their statements and undermined his statements. Jeremiah 20, 7 to 13 says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me. This is Jeremiah talking. It's one of those statements that people don't always understand correctly. God doesn't deceive anybody. He doesn't lie to anybody. I'll explain what this means in a moment, but Jeremiah's feeling was, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. 
I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. Now, I'll go back and explain what he said about being deceived. It just means that I didn't realize what things were going to be like. And you called me, and I'm figuring your calling is going to be something wonderful and great and glorious. And it's rough, Lord. That's what Jeremiah is getting at. He said, For since I spake, I cried out. I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord has made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart as a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. For I heard the defaming of many, that's that slanderous, evil speaking, fear on every side. Report, say they, and we will report it. All my familiars watch for my halting. What a sad thing to say. That's like saying my friends, my peers, were looking for an opportunity for me to trip up and fall so they could attack me saying, peradventure, he will be enticed, and we shall prevail against him, and we shall take our revenge upon him. What kind of spirit is that of his peers? That's how bad it can get when people are determined to refuse and reject the word of the Lord, including even the people of God in this case. But what an encouraging statement in the next sentence. But the Lord is with me as a mighty terrible one. That's pretty frightening sounding, but if the Lord's with you as a mighty terrible one, that's not something you need to be afraid of. That's a great encouragement to know that the mighty God of heaven is on your side. They shall not prevail. They shall be greatly ashamed, for they shall not prosper. Their everlasting confusion shall never be forgotten. But O Lord of hosts that triest the righteous and seest the reins in the heart, let me see thy vengeance on them, for unto thee have I opened my cause. Sing unto the Lord, praise ye the Lord, for he hath delivered the soul of the poor from the hand of evildoers. So despite misgivings about having to preach the difficult message that he was given and without having the kind of results he might have hoped for and in the face of great persecution, Jeremiah could say with confidence, the Lord is with me as a mighty terrible one. I'm going to tell you one thing I have felt. I'm not comparing myself to Jeremiah in any specific sense. One thing I have felt this last year, when I felt the Lord constantly pressing me to speak on different things and inspiring me on certain lines of thought and things that we've gone through this last couple of years, I have felt the Lord beside me as a mighty, terrible one, saints. I felt him closer and stronger and more supporting of me than I've ever felt in my entire life and in my entire ministry. I mean, I know the Lord has been beside me as a mighty, terrible one, and I believe he's still beside me. That's what it'll take for us to get through some of the challenges we have in front of us. We need the Lord beside us as a mighty, terrible one. Terrible can be good or bad, depending on how you look at it. It's shocking, awe-inspiring. We use that phrase for when we have gone into different countries militarily and hit them so hard it just knocked them for a loop, so to speak. Shock and awe. God invented shock and awe long before the United States military. God is a God of shock and awe. There's times it just shocks you, brings you to awe, the power and the might of God. Another passage in Jeremiah, 26th chapter, the 8th through the 15th verse. says, Now it came to pass, when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak unto all the people, that the priests and the prophets, there's those ministers that are standing against him, and all the people, there's the laity, go along with the ministry, took him, saying, Thou shalt surely die. What a sad thing that God called Jeremiah to speak and to deliver them and to help them and to get their attention. And instead, they wanted to kill the man. Why hast thou prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant? And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah and the house of the Lord. When the princes of Judah heard this, here are the civil powers now, along with the religious. Then they came up from the king's house unto the house of the Lord, and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. 
Then spake the priests and the prophets unto the princes and all the people, saying, This man is worthy to die, for he hath prophesied against this city, as you have heard with your ears. That's what the Babylonish church said when the reformers started speaking out against that Babylonish Roman church. They said, how dare you speak out against the church, the false church. There is no church, true, false, or otherwise. If there is an otherwise, there isn't an otherwise, true or false. But there is no church, true or false, that the God of heaven may not speak out against at times. Even the true church has made dire missteps at times, and God will send prophets to speak out against those missteps. God in heaven help us never to take a stand against the very person that God has sent to speak against some of the things that might be occurring. Like that Roman church did and ended up killing massive amounts of people because those people were speaking out against the pollutions and evils going on in that church. Then spake Jeremiah unto all the princes and all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city all the words that you've heard. Therefore now amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God and the Lord will repent him of the evil that he has pronounced against you. That's that hope I told you is built in. God wasn't going to keep them from going into captivity because he'd already said that's a set thing. But God could have repented of a lot of the evil. There's the word evil. Remember I said earlier, the evil God was going to do against them. That's not moral evil. That's the terrible destruction and persecution God was going to allow to be unleashed on them. As for me, behold, I am in your hand. Do with me as seemeth good and meet unto you. But know you for certain that if you put me to death, you shall surely bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and upon the inhabitants thereof. For of a truth, the Lord has sent me unto you to speak all these words in your ears. So the ministry, which is what's being referred to by the priests and prophets, and the laity, referred to there by the people, they even alliterated it all for us in English, didn't they? And the princes, who were the civil leaders in Jeremiah's day, were also blinded by their arrogance about their identity, that they were God's special chosen people. And surely God couldn't destroy them or destroy their work or set them aside. That they ended up violently opposing Jeremiah's calls for reform and repentance, and they refused to accept that they could ever be out of the will of God or in need of correction. We better never let that kind of arrogance develop in us as a church or a body of people where we think we are so great, so set apart from everyone else that things can occur among us that are abominations and it'll be fine because we're on too high of a level to be lowered. God can bring anybody down and we have to make sure we maintain a high level of personal purity and holiness as well as corporate purity and holiness. The prophet Amos talked about some of the individuals who had this same kind of spirit. It says in Amos 5.10, They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. When evil's going on in the gate, or judgment has to be properly carried out there, those who are corrupt will hate and abhor anyone who's seeking to righteously judge or purify conditions that have to be addressed. 